Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. It's great to see you all here this morning. Um, before we get started, I'm just going to give a quick reminder that this is our last Medicine Grand Rounds for this academic year and um, to allow all of our new residents and fellows to settle in over the next couple weeks. We will have a little bit of a gap at the beginning of the 2019 to 20 academic year. So our first M&M will be um, on July 10th and our first Medicine Grand Rounds will be on July 12th. So the next two weeks, um, just make sure everybody's doing okay and meet all our new house staff and welcome them here. Um, so I'm going to switch our slides over. For those who haven't yet had a chance for the CME code, it's JPWQ. And oh, and I should say, since it just flashed up, our, our, our next Medicine Grand Rounds, we decided this year to start off our, um, our academic year with a Medicine Grand Rounds on um, education. So please join us for that. Uh, it should be a great talk. Um, Dr. Chris Smith from Harvard and Beth Israel is going to come and, and talk to us about um, bedside assessment. So a really important topic. Nice to welcome our residents and new residents and fellows, um, showing them that we care about education. And I hope we'll, we'll see you all here for that. All right, let me do this technical bit, switching over. Aha, uh -huh. work. <laughs> and um, I'm going to go ahead and, and turn the lights down because that's our speaker's preference. So uh, they won't be too dim, but just know the lights are going to dim a little bit in the room. There you go. Uh, and with that, I'm going to welcome Paul Geyer up. Paul's a professor of uh, microbiology and immunology. Um, and we're really pleased that um, we were able to collaborate for this Grand Rounds today. He's going to tell you about today's speaker. Thank you, Kelly. I'm pleased and truly honored to introduce David Sistrom. David is not only the proud father of Hannah, who graduated from the Geisel School of Medicine two weeks ago, but also an outstanding physician, scientist, teacher, and mentor. After receiving his MD at Dartmouth Medical School and clinical training at Emory and MGH, David did a research fellowship at Harvard Medical School and then joined the HMS faculty, where he continues to this day. He has formally taught classes for medical students, research and clinical fellows, attendings. He's given dozens of invited lectures throughout the world, been recognized by who's who in medicine and health as well as Best Doctors of America, currently director of the Dyspnea Clinic and Invasive Cardiopulmonary Exercise Testing Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. David serves on multiple committees at MGH, Brigham and Women's, NIH, and the Pulmonary Vascular Research Institute, where he chairs the Exercise in Pulmonary Hypertension Committee. He will now tell us about new insights into myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. Thank you, David. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Kelly and Paul, for the kind introduction. Uh, it makes me feel a little bit old, and if you're doing the math, um, I graduated DMS uh, pre-Geisel in 1979, so we're working on 40 years, which is crazy. I can't believe that. Um, at the 40-year mark, I believe we're allowed to uh, get up on our soapbox every once in a while and pontificate. So if you'll indulge me, what I'm going to do is weave a little bit of a personal story into some of the science that I hope to tell you about and uh, some of our investigation into MECFS, which Paul's mentioned as today's topic. Um, so I'd like to tell you a little bit about what I do and where I came from. 
Uh, and there's my alternative title. How did ADMS and IMDMS end up studying MECSF? I'm a lung doctor and a critical care doctor. Dr. Manning uh, knows that. So uh, back in the day, um, I arrived at the Dartmouth Medical School campus. It was circa 1976, and I sought out this man, whom the uh, senior faculty will recognize in a heartbeat. This was Marsh Tenney. And it turns out that I'm related to Marsh Tenney. Go figure. I'm some distant cousin. And I thought as a first-year medical student, I would seek him out in his lab where he was puttering around doing great things. For those of you who don't know him, the youngsters perhaps, uh, he basically saved Dartmouth Medical School in the 50s um, and was instrumental in creating the three-year and then the four-year program, putting physiology back on the map and a huge uh, research institute with uh, links to the NIH, uh, just one of the greats in the field. And so I was pleased to seek him out and meet him and introduce myself, the little first-year medical student, uh, as his cousin. And I found him in the hallway. I said, Dr. Tenney, um, I'm your cousin. And he, he looked at me, and, you know, the hair was down to here back then, and, and he said, oh, Jesus. And he, <laughs> and he turned around and walked away. <laughs> but then we got to know each other a little bit better. Of course, he was great. But that was my introduction to pulmonary physiology at Dartmouth Medical School. It had an auspicious start, but what a wonderful guy. Um, uh, he trained somebody, the second author on this old paper on pulmonary hypertension, which is some of what I do at the Brigham, uh, Bob Nye. Robert Nye was a great physiologist, uh, pulmonary physiologist here at Dartmouth, and he really uh, stoked my interest as a medical student in the subject, so a little uh, call out to him. And then finally, somebody all of you will recognize, uh, this fellow, a uh, little younger, wild picture of Dr. Natty. And in my early days at Mass General as a research fellow, I got into ventilatory control and, of course, then found out in not totally in retrospect, but also in prospect, uh, the great work that Gene Natty had and continues to do here at uh, Geisel. Um, really great guy. He also taught me to keep my elbows up in the corner during intramural hockey because he was a tough bird playing hockey. So Gene, Gene and I have remained friendly since. So that's kind of my uh, beginning of my DMS story. Um, uh, it's a cliche that we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And here's one place that I investigated back in the day because it was kind of near and dear. Some of you may have heard of this. It actually was the granddaddy of what I'm about to tell you about, um, cardiopulmonary exercise testing in the human, and it was a really interesting place. Um, it was in the business school at Harvard, down in the basement, and here's uh, one of the earlier early subjects. Largely uh, studied were normal individuals and athletes. Clarence DeMar, who won uh, the Boston Marathon, seven times. A fellow, Adam Melrose, was studied there extensively, and then when he died, he actually went on to um, uh, donate his heart to the medical school. It was one of the early descriptions of the athletic heart. They, um, they studied detraining. They had a visiting French fellow who was living the French paradox, doing no exercise, drinking red wine, and he was the detrained, unconditioned control. 
and there were some early descriptions of what it's like to be out of shape. I actually trained a dog to run on the treadmill. They had measurements of pulmonary gas exchange that were early and cardiac output. And they put many of the basic tenets of exercise physiology that we now know to be true on the map back in the day. Um, so that's my little uh, backdrop here. Here's a table of contents of what I'd like to accomplish, what I'd like to tell you about over uh, the next uh, 40, 45 minutes or so. Uh, I'll briefly give you a poor person's definition of MECFS, a.k.a. chronic fatigue syndrome. And I'll use the Institute of Medicine definition for that. And uh, believe me, anybody in practice and seeing patients in the clinic will readily recognize you've got a ton of these patients there, um, whether we call it this or not. Um, then I'm going to tell you about this invasive cardiopulmonary exercise test. You saw an early photo on my uh, first slide, and we'll get into that a little bit. I'll tell you how um, the cardiopulmonary exercise test, the basic part, but then the addition of a couple of catheters gives us a phenomenal amount of data about what ails the patient, what uh, is uh, responsible for their exercise intolerance. And we'll tell you how we do that and how we apply it to this particular disease. And I'll give you some new data that suggests some very interesting um, uh, findings that suggest neurovascular dysregulation may play a role in MECFS. I'm going to touch down a little bit on something near and dear to uh, DMS and Geisel uh, because you have amongst you a neurologist who has published on small fiber neuropathy and in an interesting way, the lung doc has found his way a little bit into that world, and we have some evidence that this entity, which is increasingly recognized and pretty easily diagnosed, may be uh, responsible for some of that neurovascular dysregulation. And finally, I will just touch on a little bit of treatment at the end here. All right, so what is MECFS? Um, the Institute of Medicine says requires uh, four of these five criteria. The first three are major criteria. One is intractable fatigue for more than six months. So this is the type of fatigue that really interferes with activities of daily living, uh, not the trivial variety, according to them. Another very interesting feature of this disorder is post-exertional malaise. This is a really peculiar one. Uh, the patient says if they overdo physically and sometimes even mentally on one day, they pay the price. And it's often hours to a day or maybe two later. And it's often reproducible. And if they really do physical activity, if they climb Mount Everest, uh, they may be wiped out for days or even weeks on end. So it's a really poorly understood phenomenon, but it's a, a critical part of the uh, diagnostic criteria, post-exertional malaise. Uh, Non-refreshing sleep is ubiquitous, and if you go and do the time-honored overnight sleep study, you won't find much. You'll find disruptive sleep, and a very uh, small number have any kind of sleep-disordered breathing, including central or obstructive sleep apnea. That would be a minority of patients. Um, the two minor criteria, but pretty ubiquitous, are orthostatic intolerance. So, Doc, uh, I get lightheaded when I pop up out of the supine position in the morning too quickly, or if I've been standing for a while in the kitchen. Uh, so lightheadedness is part of it, and I'm going to give you a little of the pathophysiology for that. And the last one is um, incredibly interesting uh, and uh, somewhat tragic because it really compromises many of these patients is what they all call brain fog. Uh, and so this is cognitive issues. 
they try to do things they used to do on the computer, and they hit a wall, and then they may even pay the price after that. So brain fog is another. Most in the field, I think, believe uh, some of this may be rated, related to brain blood flow, although there are some very interesting functional MRI studies emerging that suggest uh, CNS inflammation is uh, part of it. All right, so it's a, a big problem. Uh, there are estimates made that as much as 25% of patients in a primary care office may suffer from an element of this, and if you dig down with a history, you may find it. Uh, the upper end of the estimates are that there are 2.5 million cases in the U.S. It's a phenomenally um, uh, problematic disease in that it strikes many young people who are of working age, and the estimates of lost productivity are upwards of $9 billion per year in this country. And then the direct and indirect costs, including things like medical care and a lot of testing done, much of it um, unrevealing the standard testing that we do to investigate exercise intolerance, including pulmonary function tests, cardiac echo, cardiac stress tests, all of these cost money. They're done. They're done repeatedly, even when they're normal at first, uh, and they don't reveal much or anything. All right, so I'm going to tell you how we've attacked this problem. Uh, it's with something we call the invasive or eye cardiopulmonary exercise test, ICPET. Uh, here's a pretty picture and a fellow who gave us permission to film him. There's nothing too earth shattering on the film just to see that we've assembled a small village. Interestingly, uh, we're in a basement too. It's in the basement of the Shapiro building at the Brigham, just like the old Harvard fatigue lab banished to a dungeon. But we've got um, uh, a small village assembled. It includes a couple of exercise physiologists, a PA, one of our fellows, and I'm there for most of them. Uh, and this fellow is pedaling away. Um, there, what you see in his mouth is a mouthpiece with a pneumatacograph, and it's connected to a metabolic cart. We measure ventilation and pulmonary gas exchange. And then what you may see in his neck is a pulmonary artery catheter. And over in his left wrist is a radial artery catheter, and those are the two catheters that we do. So here, here to just slow things down are some of the primary measurements that we get during one of these tests. Uh, let's see. So um, from the mouthpiece, this is totally non-invasive. Uh, a cardinal number, there are others, is the VO2 max. So this is the overall aerobic capacity at the end of the exercise bout. And as you'll see, what we do is use this as an index of how impaired the patient is. What I will tell you is that in MECFS, um, this is not so earth-shattering. There are severe cases where that number may uh, fall to something like 50% of predicted compared to the patient's peers. Uh, but for the most part, that number is reasonably well-preserved, and in the range that many would view is in the um, range of detraining. So it's perhaps 70% are predicted with roughly 80% uh, and above being normal. So that's a number that we use, um, and as you'll see with treatment, we can make it improve. Uh, but many patients, I think, are written off uh, because they get this uh, mega workup, a very costly workup, cardiopulmonary disease and rheumatologic disease, neurologic disease. It's all negative. Then they get to this, and this number is underwhelming, and they are shuttled off into the realm of detraining. But there's more to it than that, uh, which I'll come back to. Uh, from the radial artery line, we get blood gases, and buried in there is the arterial oxygen content. And from the distal pulmonary artery catheter, just as up in the ICU, we get the mixed venous oxygen content. 
From this and these two numbers, we can derive a thick cardiac output, and we get that every minute during exercise. And we get a bunch of pressures, not so germane to today as things like the pulmonary artery pressure and the wedge. We get that every minute. Uh, but what is very germane to MECFS is the filling pressure, especially on the right side, uh, but on the left side as well, the right atrial pressure in the upright position. And I will mention this quickly, that if you do all this sort of thing in a cath lab setting supine, you miss everything in, in the CFS. You must have the patient upright, and gravity is the enemy, and you'll see why that's germane here in a few minutes. All right, so a couple of cartoons to tell you how we uh, interpret these things. Um, one is this VO2 max that I just mentioned, and a very well-trained individual will get up to some phenomenal level and maybe 130 or 140% of predicted. And if you're sick, and the sick can be anything, heart, lung disease, and some of the things we're about to talk about, uh, that VO2 max and the amount of work that the patient does at max exercise falls. Now, what I want to remind you of, because I'm going to come back to this on several occasions, is about our old friend, the FIC principle. So you can uh, explain any decrement in the VO2 max by any uncompensated decrease in peak exercise cardiac output, uh, any decrease in arterial oxygen content, so that could be anemia or um, arterial hypoxemia, uh, not so germane to MECFS, or you could explain this by an inability of the periphery, meaning the skeletal muscle exercising, to take up and utilize oxygen, especially at peak exercise. So normally this falls threefold from normal values. This goes up about fivefold, and then you realize this 15-fold increase of VO2 above resting levels. So what you will see in the next few minutes is that in MECFS, We've got this decrease slightly, and the reasons are dual. They include cardiac output, but they also include uh, impaired systemic oxygen extraction. Uh, so here's uh, a case, and this tends in ME to be the more severely affected patient who has um, a dramatic decrease in the peak exercise cardiac output that in turn leads to a depressed VO2 max. So these are relatively rare cases. Uh, clinically, they're much more sick, often homebound or even bedbound. Uh, but they, their missing aerobic capacity, as it were, is in fact explained by a depressed peak exercise cardiac output. And I'll show you a study that we published a couple of years ago that may explain some of that. The other phenomenon that we've recognized, and actually uh, more so over the past couple of years, is inability to widen the AVO2 content difference to realize that increase in VO2 max. Impaired systemic oxygen extraction, meaning the mixed venous O2 content does not fall normally, normal here in green. And there are a couple of potential reasons for that. One is uh, we're all charged, or our autonomic nervous system is charged with regulating blood flow out in the muscle. At peak exercise, what should happen if you're normal is that you overcome what's called, it's called endogenous sympatholysis. There's a lot of sympathetic tone at peak exercise, and these vasodilators, local vasodilator and metabolites generated during muscle metabolism overcome it and dilate up those capillary beds. So one reason that mixed venous oxygen content may not fall normally in ME is vascular dysregulation in the periphery, the arterial side. Uh, the other potential reason I'm not going to talk a lot about today, perhaps in the future, 
is intrinsic mitochondrial dysfunction in the muscle. And that happens in adults, and it can happen in a post-infectious setting. So it's at play, and we are pursuing muscle biopsies now, maybe more on that one later. So a couple of different reasons for poor oxygen extraction. So here's a case, uh, real life, uh, running shoe executive I saw in our so-called dyspnea clinic at the Brigham a little while back. And what he had noticed was, Doc, I was fine. I was running my splits uh, just fine until I got the flu two years ago. And then two years out, I'm still not normal. I'm two minutes per mile off on my splits. What gives? 60-year-old guy. And ultimately, this is what he had, and I wanted to introduce this low flow state in MECFS with this. So what he had was no augmentation of his right atrial pressure shown down here on the bottom. Normally, in the upright position, they're about three millimeters at rest, and they go up to about 10 at peak exercise. He didn't even think about doing that. This is ubiquitous in MECFS, failure to augment right-sided filling pressures and, for that matter, the left side. Fail, failure to prime the pump, I guess, is how you could say it. Uh, don't get distressed by this slide, but um, it is a study that our, one of our first stabs at understanding some of this. Um, we published this a couple of years ago, and basically... Uh, we took uh, what was then our invasive cardiopulmonary exercise test cohort at the Brigham, over 600 patients, all evaluated for various forms of exertional intolerance. And they had a bunch of things that we recognized, so heart and lung disease, pulmonary vascular disease, and we ruled all of those out in this particular study. And then we asked the question, at the end of the day, are there other reasons for impaired VO2 max and symptoms that are not explained by classic heart and lung disease? And the answer was, we found a cadre of patients down here, this impaired group, uh, whose VO2 max, the maximum oxygen uptake, was abnormal, but they didn't have heart or lung disease. They had something else. <clears throat> and we compared them to a subset of patients who ended up being normal. They were symptomatic normals. Um, meaning they came to us with some complaints, but we couldn't find anything wrong with them. And we asked the question, what was the pathophysiology that underlay the depressed VO2max in these patients without any heart or lung disease as an explanation? And the answer seemed to be in the upright position, and I emphasize upright, um, filling pressures, uh, both on the right side and on the left side. So right atrial pressures here, pulmonary capillary wedge pressures, a surrogate for left atrial pressures over here. <clears throat> and most interestingly, there's a little bit of a signal at rest, but it really becomes unmasked at peak exercise on both sides. So what distinguished the impaired group from the normal group was inadequate right and left-sided uh, filling pressures. They were not priming the pump. Uh, we further tried to relate some of the abnormal aerobic capacity, in this case the VO2 max, and down here the peak cardiac output to the filling pressures at peak exercise over here on the right side and over here on the left side. And lo and behold, there's a relationship. So uh, lower filling pressures associated with compromised peak exercise cardiac output and uh, consequent, a consequent decrease in the VO2 max. So we call this preload failure for lack of a better term. 
Uh, we're not yet in MECFS, but um, lo and behold, most of these patients met the criteria for MECFS. We did further uh, an interventional cohort where we bolused them up with normal saline uh, there in the exercise lab after the first test in an effort to get the right atrial pressure up to a respectable value and then ask them to pedal again within an hour. Same lines are in place for the clinically indicated test. And everything got better when we bumped up the right atrial and the left atrial pressures. Um, uh, the pressures were higher and the stroke volume response to exercise was higher, resulting in a better cardiac output and an increased VO2 max. And they all felt better despite the fact it was a second bout of exercise within an hour. Yes, when? So um, you're maybe going to get to it, but so there's decreased venous return that you can bump up with saline. Exactly. But you also said that the muscle beds don't dilate as much. I am going to get to that, and it's a fabulous probe, and I promise to get there in just a minute. Exactly right. So this was our first stab, and our focus, in fact, was on the venous side uh, and what was going on. So we'll get to that, and it will be nested in this next, next section. We went back and asked these patients um, retrospectively, patients we described um, about with the IOM questionnaire for MECFS, and the majority meet the criteria for MECFS. We knew they had fatigue. We didn't call it MECFS at the time, but it seemed to be a real common problem. You might ask yourself, put your clinician's hat on, okay, were they dehydrated? Answer is no, they weren't kept MPO. None of them was on a diuretic. None of them was on a vasoactive medication. So I think this is a real phenomenon, and it's continued to, we continue to find it. All right, so I want to introduce something else here, um, and there is local expertise here, Dr. Geyer, on small fiber neuropathy or polyneuropathy, uh, the newer term neuropathy. And just to remind everyone, so I had to remind myself about this, I'm a lung doctor, uh, there are these small unmyelinated fibers, very close or identical to nociceptive fibers, uh, C fibers and uh, delta fibers, uh, thinly myelinated fibers that live in a bunch of different places. Um, classically, they've been described as uh, pain fibers, and they have been known, and some of the published work out of Dartmouth uh, has suggested that they are very relevant when disordered, small fiber neuropathy, meaning the fibers are missing in action or misfiring. They've been linked to things like fibromyalgia, probably a 50 plus percent prevalence, and they've been linked to postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And because POTS has a huge overlap with the patients we're seeing with this preload failure, we became interested in it and began to systematically do a skin biopsy to look for this. So um, shown here, maybe um, not so easily seen, is a little brown fiber and the two key points here are that normally this fiber runs with both arteries and veins. It's in the vicinity of and innervates blood vessels. Uh, it innervates things like sweat glands and then the epidermis, and it's the epidermis that is kind of a window to a minimally invasive skin biopsy to diagnose it. And when you find it, it looks like this, if you can see this down here. Here's a normal individual with a small fiber stained and innervating the epidermis. And again, with a minimally invasive skin biopsy, here's a patient with a small fiber neuropathy, and the nerve fibers are missing in action. Now, the new news in small fiber 
physiology is that these guys are very active in autonomic function. They're not just pain fibers, which used to largely be thought to be the case. They innervate organs and they innervate blood vessels, and that's why we're fascinated uh, by them. So a more recent study that we've just submitted for publication, not yet published, but is available in abstract form is this. Very similar uh, to our prior approach, what we did now with uh, twice the number of invasive sea pets at the Brigham. Um, we have weeded out everything else under the sun, including some maximum tests and pulmonary and uh, heart reasons for exercise intolerance. We focused on this preload failure subset and then further focused on the patients and found 223 recent studies where the patients had had uh, skin biopsy and we could say yay or nay, small fiber neuropathy. Uh, and here are some of the demographics. They're not all super important. Um, not a huge number of comorbidities, the usual stuff in the United States. Not a huge number of vasoactive medications in this group. And uh, I'll show you this in another form, in a graphic form. Here is their prevalence of small fiber neuropathy. And a bit of overlap clinically with things like POTS, fibromyalgia, mast cell activation disorder. So here's what we found with the invasive hemodynamics during the invasive cardiopulmonary exercise test. And uh, this gets to William's question about uh, what are we finding on the arterial side. So the key figure is right here. Uh, we've got a group of normals shown here in gray, and what I've depicted here is the slope of the cardiac output versus VO2 during incremental cycling. And that's known to be normal at 6, 6 ml of blood flow to ml of O2 uptake during incremental cycling exercise. That's a normal value. And what we found were two extremes, and these are tertiles of that slope. Uh, one was the low flow group, and I think that that's the more severely affected folks that we described in that first paper with low filling pressures and low cardiac output. But there is a second group, and this has gotten our attention more recently, where there's a lot of flow. Uh, to it. And remember, what we're measuring is the thick um, cardiac output, so that's pulmonary blood flow. And what we've noticed is that there is a disconnect between the uh, peak cardiac output, which is preserved going around and around in the lungs, and the VO2 max in those patients. And that is an index in the exercise world of what's called left-to-right shunting. So this is blood flow effectively going around and around in the lungs, but not effectively getting to the mitochondrion and the skeletal muscle. So we believe this is a form of left-to-right shunting. We know it's not intracardiac because at the time of their resting right heart catheterization, there is no step-up of oxygen, no suggestion that there's an anatomic defect in the septum of the heart. This is microscopic left-to-right shunting, ineffectual blood flow going out to the periphery, not getting to the mitochondrion properly. So the question is, is it related at all to small fiber neuropathy? Uh, so here are our patients, and we've drilled down further with the IOM uh, criteria, and we have found that the overwhelming majority here in red meet the criteria for ME-CFS with this preload failure. And then the next question was, is it related to small fiber neuropathy? And shown over here in the blue is the prevalence of small fiber neuropathy, either definite, uh, less than the fifth centile density, 
or um, probable less than the 15th. So roughly half of the patients with this vascular um, irregularity during exercise, both the preload failure and this left-to-right shunting, ineffectual blood flow in the periphery, have small fiber neuropathy. And that prevalence is frighteningly close to that described in things like fibromyalgia and POTS. So we think that small fiber neuropathy may be uh, partially responsible for the vascular dysregulation. Here's the disappointing part. We, attempt to, we attempted to relate the anatomy to the physiology. So these are uh, four panels that have uh, the skin biopsy centile, the density of small fibers on the x-axis, and then physiologic responses on the y-axis. VO2 max here, cardiac output here, the difference between um, arterial and mixed venous O2 content here, and then finally the right atrial pressures. And there is no good relationship for any of this. Our view right now, anyway, our um, interim hypothesis is that the small fiber neuropathy may underlie some of this, but the anatomy, the nerve density, doesn't give us the whole story. And it may be the function of the remaining small fibers that really do tell the story. All right, I want to tell you about quickly about two potential neurotoxic pathways that may play a role. Remember, I'm a lung doctor, not a neurologist. Um, two potential pathways that might potentially play a role in the development of small fiber neuropathy that I think are biologically plausible because um, they exist in some of the comorbidities and some of them are triggered by some of the known uh, triggers for ME-CFS patients. So one is TRAIL. Uh, this is TNF-related apoptosis-inducing ligand. And I had to learn about this one, but it's a really interesting um, cytokine. Uh, it's induced by a bunch of different things, but I think germane uh, to this particular talk is that uh, viral syndromes or viruses can cause stimulation of this uh, cytokine. And the cytokine is known to be neuropathic uh, and neurotoxic. Uh, here's what it does when it's released. Um, won't get too much into this, but the big picture is that it does two things. One is that it begets apoptosis, and that's this receptor over here and this pathway. And the other is that it induces NF-kappa B, which everybody probably knows is a central player in terms of inflammation. So trail begets inflammation and is potentially neurotoxic with all the evil humors that are released in the uh, NF-kappa-B cascade. Now, interesting little thing over here is that most cells in the body, this is ubiquitous, uh, most cells produce trail, but most cells are also protected from the unchecked inflammation that would relate from trail by this dummy receptor over here. So if trail binds to this uh, ligand, nothing happens, and this is the protective mechanism and pr puts a break on the system. Interestingly, neurons don't have this, so this is a potentially neurotoxic pathway. Um, very quickly, I want to show you some data from the NIH from a couple of years back that looked at uh, fatigue, not classic ME-CFS, but fatigue after radiation therapy uh, and cancer survivors. And what they found was a relationship between trail and plasma, trail levels in both uh, function and also in a fatigue score. So trail, trail fatigue score was increased in those patients with trail 
increased in plasma, so a potential player. In our hands, and this is very preliminary work, what we have demonstrated in MECFS, and we have normal controls cooking, and I can't tell you about it, is that there is a measurable bump and trail as a result of acute exercise. I don't know yet if that's exaggerated compared to normal, and I don't know how long it hangs around or if it could potentially be responsible for post-exertional malaise. So more on that later. Trail is a potential neurotoxic pathway that can be produced by exercise, by, uh, by uh, exposure to viruses, and could be a player potentially in MECFS. The other pathway I just wanted to mention with this one slide we are fascinated, and the neurologists, if there are any in the audience who know all about this, is calcitonin gene-related peptide. Uh, this is known to be a major player in migraines. Uh, that it, this, this is released by neurons in migraine attacks. Plasma levels go up and persist and correlate with the headache. Read vasodilation in the CNS. Uh, and it's also known that it's a player in fibromyalgia, where I've said earlier quickly, small fiber neuropathy uh, seems to be ubiquitous. And what's even more fascinating to us is that um, a fellow named Frank Rice out of Albany has done this exquisite work with uh, hypothenar biopsies, where he gets both the epidermis and small fibers, but also gets blood vessels. And what he has found in fibromyalgia, again, a lot of overlap with MECFS, is that there are these tufts of small fibers that cluster around these potential shunts between the artery in the skin and the venules in the skin. And what they do when they are stimulated is secrete CGRP, which is uh, a neurovasodilator, and they open up these shunts. So CGRP, potentially, and a lot of migraines in MECFS, and interesting in post-exertional malaise, some patients tell us part of it is not just fatigue and the flu-like, but they get their migraine flares. Um, we think that this potentially could be important in explaining those vascular shunts that we asked about a, a little bit ago. So remember, we have inadequate venoconstriction during upright exercise in the more severe cases and ubiquitous throughout all cases. And then additionally, we appears to be left-to-right shunting in MECFS. And now we've got a pathway that's known to be active in fibromyalgia with overlap and migraines with overlap um, that is anatomically poised to open up left-to-right shunts, at least in the skin and probably in other organ systems. So we're keenly interested in this pathway, and we're going to launch a uh, clinical trial uh, in the next month or so um, with blockers of CGRP. There are three FDA-approved monoclonal antibodies that interrupt this pathway for refractory migraines. So it'll be off-label use for MECFS. We're keenly interested in this one. So tiny bit on treatment, and I'll finish here. Um, we have used, uh, interestingly, Pyridostigmine, and uh, the, for those of you who haven't uh, thought about this for a while, this is a 50-year-old drug, FDA-approved for the treatment of myasthenia gravis. And a reminder of the way it works is it inhibits the breakdown of acetylcholine in the synapse uh, and augments acetylcholine uh, levels. Uh, 
We got onto this one because it's used in postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome uh, with some success and with a bunch of other drugs as well. Um, and we had a couple of interesting cases with MECFS and severe postural intolerance who responded, and then we get onto it, and here's, uh, here's, a, here's a study for you. So 62 patients with MECFS and preload failure and some element of uh, systemic O2 extraction problem, read left to right shunting. Um, 50% of them shown down here at the bottom had small fiber neuropathy. Uh, down here, and uh, a lot of overlap with POTS, about almost 40% of them. And what we did was give that gave them clinically indicated off-label use of, of Nestanon and followed them up over about a year and repeated an exercise test. This was the non-invasive variety, but we have a way of measuring non-invasive cardiac output. So we could uh, measure cardiac output and calculate systemic O2 extraction. And here's what happened. Their VO2 maxes improved significantly compared to their baseline. Um, it appeared the major mechanism on Mestinon for improvement of VO2 max was better systemic oxygen extraction. And what I would read there would be less left-to-right shunting in the periphery. And they feel better. So um, this, too, we have as a prospective study that's underway at the Brigham uh, Randomized placebo-controlled study. So this is what I wanted to leave you with. Um, I think that at least one major pathway at play underlying the pathology of MECFS and at least the acute exercise intolerance and perhaps the post-exertional malaise is neurovascular dysregulation. And uh, what I've left you with, I hope, is that we've got some cases who are severely affected with inadequate preload, inadequate venous squeeze, inadequate priming of the pump, and therefore low cardiac output. But we've got an additional subset who are uh, quite interesting who appear to have left to right shunning ineffectual blood flow out to the periphery, and in particular, little muscle. Uh, amongst these, we are pushing about 50% with a distal skin biopsy just above the ankle, 50% prevalence of small fiber neuropathy close to POTS, close to fibromyalgia. So it may be a player, and it may be both anatomy and function that's important, giving you two pathways, two potentially neurotoxic pathways and or uh, vasodilatory pathways through the nerves, that, in the case of the CGRP, that are of keen interest. Uh, we think these things are relevant to acute exercise, perhaps post-exertional malaise, and we'd like to link all of these things together in the future, give you a bit of treatment here. Now, back to me just for a second, if you'll indulge me. These are my words of wisdom to the youngsters out there. Much of this would appear to be a cliche. And um, the top part, everybody who comes to Dartmouth and Geisel does the first three. You work hard and you play hard and you're doing good by being in the business. Um, I'd suggest to you, if you're young and thinking about what you might want to do uh, as part of your career, um, curiosity is huge in this business, so remain curious. And in my case, the part of the story was serendipity. So I had a test that was designed to detect early heart and lung disease, pulmonary vascular disease. We've applied it to something else, and we've gotten some potentially interesting answers. Um, I'd also suggest, um, you know, be generous with your time, with your colleagues, uh, with your patients. 
uh, with your trainees and try to publish what you know, try to get it out there to uh, large groups. Um, but how do you know at the end of 40 years if you've made it or not? And the real answer is we never make it, and um, we keep trying right to the end, and everybody here does that. I was told, I read that Marsh Tenney, literally on his deathbed in the hospital, um, made a comment, and he said something to the effect that <clears throat> I am <clears throat> so pleased to be able to be a witness to my own death. So it's a little morbid. But think about it. The guy was so curious and so fascinated by everything right to the end. Um, but I also went and visited uh, your recent graduates yesterday at the Brigham just to give them a hard time in the medical ICU. Um, and I then saw his attending, Deb Hugh, whom I trained way back in the day at MGH. And I told, um, told her about my daughter, Hannah, graduating Geisel, uh, new medical intern at the BIDMC. And she said, well, you know you've made it because your daughter uh, thought enough of what you did that she copied you. I didn't push Hannah, nobody pushes Hannah. So I think you know you make it if your kid, here she is on White Coat Day at Geisel, and here she is yesterday at the BIDMC doing a selfie. You know it when your kids want to emulate what you do. So I'll end there, and thank you. Great. Um, time for questions, and I guess I'll uh, more about neurodysregulation and connections to possible pathogens. Yeah, yeah. So uh, ubiquitous story is, um, Doc, I was fine till I got an infection. And a lot of tick-borne illness lurks in the background behind this. Um, I'm the first to say that what we've demonstrated, I think, um, isn't necessarily the holy grail. It may be part of the picture. And I think there are many lines of evidence that may lead to the appropriate answer in the end. Um, infection, well, for instance, the intersection of what we're doing and the infection question, trail, neurotoxic pathway is elicited, provoked by infection. And does that cause nerve damage that cause some of the stuff that I've told you about? Possibly. So there are a lot of different uh, immunity, autoimmunity, infection, uh, and neurovascular regulation. A lot of overlap with the Venn diagram. Yeah. Thank you. That was marvelous. Thank this you. Maybe a very naive question, but it's striking that there's a lot of overlap between some of these findings. Um, and what we observe in aging. There's a decrease in VO2 max, there's increase in small fiber neuropathy, there's preload dependence, there's changes in the uh, calcitonin gene-related protein that goes up. I mean, are we looking at kind of a premature aging as wow. part of this? So, wonderful question, and I'd agree with everything that you said. With respect to the small fiber uh, findings, those are age-adjusted. Okay. Um, with respect to the hemodynamics, what we tend to find with our invasive upright CPAT tends to be higher filling pressures, not lower. So it might be a bit of a difference. And then, of course, we've got a ton of young people who are affected by this disease. But is that um, sort of a, 
uh, form of premature aging? It's a fascinating question. So um, don't know the answer to that, but uh, great one. Can I just follow up with what you had asked? Have you studied people with this so-called chronic Lyme? Have you, do you have numbers on those? I don't have numbers, and um, some of you may know Donna Felsenstein, who's an ID doc at MGH, who refers a ton of patients to us. My, this is a guess. Um, probably 30% of the patients have history that we evaluate, have a history of tick-borne illness, um, and a subset of those has um, incontrovertible serologic evidence for uh, chronic Lyme. So I think it's definitely part of the picture. I don't have the numbers and whether um, others with MECFS yet. In the back, yes? So, so David, you show that the number of uh, these small fibers in the skin in these patients were not lower, as you expect, compared to normal. What about the physiology of the response to this fiber? Are they normal? Oh, okay, so maybe I, I didn't get delivered properly. The, the numbers are lower in almost half of the patients when compared to age, gender, and even race matched, and there are some racial differences, um, controls. So the numbers in almost half of them are down, the density. Um, but what you said, the second part is absolutely true. Um, we believe that it's not just density, it's, it's the nerve function. There's something called a pseudoscale, which we're investigating. Uh, it's been used for diabetic small fiber neuropathy diagnosis, uh, impedance and sweat and the soles of your feet. And we're going to um, try that approach to try to elucidate how much function is playing a role here rather than just anatomy. But great question. So as a rheumatologist, we see a majority of patients have one form or another of this syndrome. They have fibro, they have POTS, they have uh, mast cell activation, chronic fatigue, and if you look at them carefully, all of them have elements of each one of those conditions. Right. So the paradox for me, uh, one of the paradox, one of the many, is that they have uh, a deficiency in small fiber uh, neurons, but they hurt. Why do they hurt? So great question. We ask the same thing. The hand waving is that these um, the nerves they're, they're firing and they're probably oversensitive to stimuli. And in fact, I'll take that a little step further, we believe some of that might be responsible for much of something I didn't mention here, hyperventilation during exercise is ubiquitous and there is a neural pathway called the metaboreflex out of the muscle that is mediated by these fibers and it's on overdrive. So I think the remaining fibers are dysfunctional, maybe um, hypersensitive to the things that make them normally fire, hypersensitive certainly in terms of pain, the musculoskeletal pain that fibromyalgia patients get. So that's our, thank you. Yes? question. It seems, at least anecdotally, that a lot of patients with ME were former athletes, very active. Is that connected, or is it just anecdotal evidence? I'm thinking about maybe exposure to things in the environment like or the fact that there were athletes that commanded a lot from their bodies initially? Yeah, great question. I've seen both. 
in the clinic. And now having seen about 600 such patients, um, I've, I've seen former athletes, and there is particularly, particularly devastating. In a strange way, they end up being slightly protected in terms of that severe phenotype I mentioned with the very low filling pressure, low cardiac output. They tend to have better preserved VO2 maxes when they were a prior athlete. But whether um, athletic pursuits put you at risk for the disease, I just don't know. It's a great one. Okay. Um, you may or may not have been on the IOM naming committee. Um, but any thoughts about why a disease of uh, small fiber neuropathy and, and, um, and vascular dysregulation is called ME? Um, I was not on the naming committee and um, have seen all the uh, iterations of no, I don't have a good answer. There is some evidence that there is, I think it was a nod to the neural component of all of this, um, also a nod to the cognitive issues, the brain fog. I think um, the name predated some of the good functional MRI that suggests CNS inflammation as part of um, the story. So I don't have a great answer there. I can't defend it, actually. I like CFS fun. Sir. Going back to the premature aging issue, uh, uh, is there any evidence of sarcopenia in these patients? And also, is there uh, an identifiable abnormality uh, specifically of the mitochondria? Great question. Yeah. So that is a burning question of ours. No pun intended, the muscles burn. Um, and we have actually a study uh, with a group in Dallas in such patients. We're sending the poor O2 extractors, systemic O2 extractors, which could be vascular or mito or both, for muscle biopsy that includes a frozen analysis by seahorse of the uh, respiratory chain of the mitochondrion. And I don't have answers yet. I'll, I guess I could say anecdotally we're um, four for four with some abnormalities usually of complex two. There is a precious little literature of muscle biopsies and mitochondrial workups in the ME population, but there are a couple of papers that suggest that there is a real abnormality there. It's likely what uh, neurology would call uh, secondary mitochondrial myopathy. Usually there is no readily identified genetic reason for it. And there are also, I'm aware of a couple of papers that suggest small fiber neuropathy and mitochondrial uh, disease can coexist. And their hand waving is that the mito is first and there isn't enough ATP for the neuron. So it's a, a big question. Uh, mitochondrial myopathy's treatment is totally different from the dysautonomia part of uh, our treatment. And uh, a real good question. I would just add that there's now three NIH-funded centers to study this disease, and some of the other centers are also looking at mitochondrial issues. So I think finally some research will uh, reveal some of the underpinnings of this disease. Yeah, at the um, NIH two-day symposium Paul and I attended um, about six weeks ago, uh, there was a presentation from the intramural uh, NIH group uh, studying ME, and the, this is a little bit of leap of faith. They're looking at um, men's in the peripheral blood by seahorse, the mitochondrial function in, in 
blood cells. And they were able to document a hit to mitochondrial function uh, by the seahorse assay uh, doing replicate cardiopulmonary exercise tests, the 24-hour test. So there's the initial one and then the second one. And what's known is that in MECFS, the VO2 max falls, and there are some other surrogates for dysfunction. But they, they have preliminary data that suggest mitochondria become dysfunctional as a result of the first exercise bout, and it correlates with post-exertional malaise. So more on that one soon. Okay. Thank you, David. You're so welcome.